Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Anti Culture. Today's episode is so special to me, and I can't wait to dive in with you all. But first, I wanted to let you know that our new website is now live, and there's a ton of cool stuff on there. You can check it out at www.josiahpodcast.com. Special thanks to Arcade Studios, a digital forward creative agency specializing in content, social media marketing, and digital advertising, who put it together for me. It seriously looks really cool. You'll want to check it out. It's josiahpodcast.com. For those of you who are just tuning in, my name is Josiah Sinanen, and my mission on this show is to challenge the concept we've created of culture here in the Western world. Too often, as I've personally experienced, people are limited to the boxes we place them in. And without hearing their individual stories, we can miss out on what really makes someone tick. As I mentioned, I have a very special episode for you today I'm so excited to share with you. I think it may just be my most thought-provoking listen. Before we dive in, however, I want to mention that Anticulture is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, featuring shows like Repodcasting. Ever wish you could recast your favorite movie and think you could do a better job at it? That's what Repodcasting is all about. You can check it out and other Alberta-made podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. This week's episode highlights two incredible forerunners of thought and story that make the world around us shine. My first guest today is Ali Bendali, the current CEO of a company called Operation EyeSight that aims to mitigate preventable blindness in the developing world. The company has had an incredible sustainable structure that empowers the countries they work in, and they literally make the blind see. As you can imagine, the results and reward of this work are incredible. Imagine getting to watch someone see the world around them for the very first time, when previously they may have thought that was impossible. Ali's story about how he became involved in this movement is incredible, and we were able to connect through another friend of the show, Lori Caltagironi, who you might recognize from last season. Lori is my second guest on this episode, and we'll be catching up with her latest projects. And she'll also be sharing some fascinating insight with us on the world as a whole. Lori is also a CEO of a company called Synesis. She's a member of a think tank called Cardis here in Canada, and she's an unexpected member of the 1% here in Calgary. A heart of gold and an outlook that is inspiring, I'm so excited to have Lori here with us again. For those of you who don't know, my background is actually in international relations, and this episode is so near and dear to my heart to give you a global outlook on culture and the misinterpretations that both Lori and Ali have had to face in their pasts. Although they are now both successful CEOs, it wasn't always that way for them. And despite their success and contributions to the world around them today, they still face misconceptions surrounding their identities and their missions. A goal of mine this year had been to befriend individuals who are older than myself and who have accomplished noteworthy and unordinary things in their lives. By spending time with both Lori and Ollie, I have come to deeply appreciate the insight they offer into the world around us. If you're listening to this episode and feel inspired to do the same, I would encourage it. As a millennial, I believe we can miss out on so much insight by staying within our own bubbles. We end up thinking about and talking about all the same things all the time. With Ali and Lori, I've been able to talk about incredible thoughts and have access to such a special insight that I don't have with my peers. It's been enlightening to say the least, and I'm so pleased I can invite you, the listener, into our conversations. This episode of Anti-Culture is brought to you by the Common Ground Podcast, a five-part series exploring narratives of hate and counter-hate here in Alberta, prompted by the rise in police-reported hate crimes in our province. 
and a desire to examine what can be done to improve the way we look at each other. Episode 3, called Welcome to Canada, Now Fit In or F Off, explores the voices of anti-immigration in our province, and ironically references that all-too-common phrase I explored in Episode 3 of Season 1 of my podcast. It's actually partly why I created Anti-Culture, so you'll definitely want to check it out. Find the podcast at mcewen.ca slash O-H-R-D-E. That stands for the Office of Human Rights, Diversity, and Equity. Or you can search for Common Ground Podcast in the podcast host of your choice. Our first guest is CEO of Operation EyeSight, Ali Bendali. When I most recently connected with Ali, we had an immensely intriguing conversation about how we got to where he is today. I don't want to spoil too much, but during our conversations, one of the questions he asked me was, guess where I was born? As you can imagine, I hate answering this question. I'm culturally ambiguous myself and playing guess my background is not something I like to encourage. Unless, of course, I'm the one asking and I'm trying to see what people will say about me. My first guesses for Ali were Pakistan, then India, and his prompt was, no, go further south. I hazarded an Oman, Yemen, Saudi Arabia. He smiled and responded that he'd take me out of my misery. <laughs> Ali was born in Uganda, perhaps the last place I would expect him to respond with upon first impression. But isn't that the joy of this show, challenging our outward perceptions with someone's true story? Ali then unveiled an heroic and fascinating tale of how he got to where he was today and where his cultural journey took him. I expect that you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by Ali's incredible tale. So sit back, listen, and enjoy to Ali Bendali, a tale of cultural fascination here on Anticulture. I'm Ali Bendali. I'm the president and CEO of Operation Eyesight, and I've been there for just over a year and a half. And it's probably one of the most grateful roles that I think I've ever had in my career. It's just been an amazing ride so far, being a part of an organization that's really kind of based here in Calgary, right? doing international work. Um, I just yeah. got back actually. So I went from here to Mumbai. And then Mumbai, inside India, I went to from Mumbai to Bhopal, then to Silguri, which is in West Bengal. Okay. Then down to Bangalore. Right. Then to Hyderabad, and then back to Mumbai. And then from Mumbai, I went to Nairobi. So within Kenya, that was really kind of cool because I went north from Nairobi to a province called Narok. Okay. Which is basically right on the border of Tanzania. Okay. Came back to Nairobi and then flew to Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. Okay. And so from Tanzania came via Amsterdam and London home. That is insane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Big so, trip. And how long were you gone for that? Just under a month. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So it was, yeah, it was almost four weeks. I feel like we connected not that long ago. I know. It, that's it's time flies. Yeah. yeah time well, that's flies. amazing. And yeah. that was with Operation Eyesight, obviously. Yeah. yeah. So what were your mandates specifically on that trip? Well, that's part of the gratitude I have for this role, given the fact that really the work of the organization is to help eliminate avoidable blindness. And this particular trip was about seeing the field work and what we do and, and then meeting with 
partner hospitals, whom I consider my heroes, the community health workers that we hire in the field, who are primarily women doing this important work. And so getting a chance to see their work and then meet with those hospitals and then as well as their boards and uh, you know key volunteers and, and then as well as government officials. Mm-hmm. We get a chance to work with everyone from the community all the way to government. And so these trips are, you know, I can be fairly casual in the morning and all of a sudden I'm suited up, you know, by the afternoon. So it's a really neat opportunity. The other part of it is there's an organization that we belong to called the International Agency for Preventable Blindness. And it's sort of the global organization that most INGOs, ophthalmology, optometry organizations belong to. And so they have their annual meetings, you know, different parts of the world. And this year it was in Tanzania. So I went there for those meetings. And then we just happened to time it so that it was the release of the World Report on Vision with the World Health Organization. So that happened just last week on World Sight Day on Thursday. So it was uh, quite the trip with the release of that and all the things going on. And I always think like on, I haven't obviously gone on trips like that myself, but I imagine that it just gives you such a global perspective on the state of the world and what people are going through. And I imagine you're still processing all that too. Well, this is my third big trip since joining the organization, but this one was really meaningful in that it was really impactful knowing more about the organization and knowing more about how we do what we do. Mm -hmm. See, what's really special about what I learned about our organization is, is that the vast majority of NGOs out there focus on sort of the supply, right? uh, on the supply side of the equation. And who knew that my economics 101 was ever going to (laughs) come in handy again. But when we build hospitals and we stock them with equipment and we build capacity with doctors and, and focus on training and even building of vision centers and things like that, mm-hmm. those are all great. Those are things that are, that are important to a community. But the problem is, is that in many of these communities, unless you drive that demand, unless that population feels the trust and has the knowledge to be able to go to those facilities, yeah. then really all you've done is really build these white elephants. And that's where we're special in that the work we do, we link those two. So with our community health workers being hired from those communities, right. they're already in a very trusting position within that community. Right. And so when they're there, you know, visiting every single dwelling in a slum or in a shanty town, those individuals know this person. Mm-hmm. And so they start to really build off of that trust that they can go to that vision center or go to that secondary hospital and know that they're going to get quality care, right. whether they can afford to pay for it or not. right? And that's really a neat thing about how Operation Eyesight works because we're yeah, actually yeah, developmental. The payment system a little bit. How does the profit and drive work? Well, these? to try to keep it simple, yeah. we'll work with the hospital that's sort of deteriorated. They've been there for a while and you know they're just not getting the foot traffic of people coming to their hospital. So we'll help rebuild that hospital. You know, we'll either you know, we'll put funding into, you know, our important donor dollars into reconstructing their operating theater, their equipment, training, and all of those things. But while we're doing that, we hire community health workers who are primarily women from the adjoining communities in that catchment area of that hospital. Right. And then we train them to do two things. One is go door to door, you know, and, and be able to capture that information. Right. But then we also train them on doing simple eye screens 
as well as primary health questions as well. Hmm. So, you know, to identify malnutrition in a household, you know, find out if, you know, the house has got a, a pregnant mom or a recent baby, children five or under from a malnutrition, pers- um, from an immunization perspective. Right. And so then we create that backlog of cases that need to happen. So if somebody needs corrected vision or surgery, we document all that. Then they then get them to build the trust to go to the vision center or to the hospital. What we found is on average, 40% of the paying clients that come to these partner hospitals or the vision center pay for the 60% of the population that cannot afford it. Right. So they all get the same treatment in the same hospital, same equipment, same doctors, but whether they can afford it or not, they can go to those facilities. Right. And then so after a period of three to four years, if we've done our work right and we've gone back and re-surveyed the entire population in that slum, we'll make sure that we didn't miss any cases. Mm -hmm. And then we also do a survey called a knowledge, attitude, and practices survey. And that teaches us whether they've adopted their own health-seeking behavior. So what that means is that they now go to the hospital or to the vision center on their own, right? which is what we want, because then we can back out of that community and not have to be there. And it's self-sustaining. And it's self-sustaining. So the vision centers that we have, it's actually really kind of cool because almost 90% of the vision centers that we've put together in Operation Eyesight, that's uh, over 100 uh, vision centers, they've been self-sustaining within three to six months. Wow. So the revenue that they generate from those that can afford to pay for their glasses helps offset not only the cost of the optometrist or the ophthalmic technician that's there, but the community health workers as well. Wow. So the people that can't afford glasses still get their glasses. Even the school children, when we do school screening programs, if they can't afford their glasses, they get their glasses for free. Wow, that's and so, incredible. Real, it's really kind of cool to see how that whole self-sustaining model works. And then yeah. our role is just to make sure that we monitor and evaluate that things are are still rolling right. along. So it's almost like your ideal situation would be a bit of a rotating basis where you plant down for a little bit in one community and then you can move on to another one and little by little, the whole world sees. Is that kind of the vision? Well, actually, it's funny you say that because a lot of times I get asked the question, you know, what countries are you in? Yeah. And it's really easy to go, well, we're in eight countries. But the question I really, really would love to answer is what countries are you no longer in? Right. Because the numbers are actually staggering. So the numbers have just been redone with the release of the World Vision Report. 2.2 billion people in the world have vision impairment Mm. or blindness. Of that, 1 billion have no access to services. Wow. And so when you think about that number and you think about the population of the world, it's almost one in eight. Preventable blindness is something that we have a solution for, either through treatment, medication, surgery, or just education, you know, around use of, you know, clean faces, clean hands. That changes people's lives and gives them their sight back. Wow. And so when you think about 80% of all blindness being preventable, that means that people are needlessly blind. So that's 1 billion people that are needlessly blind, don't need to be blind. And that's really why we exist is to, is to try to tackle that number and and make that, make that difference. Wow. And I'm sure you've witnessed probably in your time in this position, that aha moment where there's people that have stories of, you know, their vision restored and, what impact does that have for their family, for their community? What yep. difference does just sight make? Oh, it's hands down the best part of my job to visit with the villages. So in this particular case, 
Each trip, we've been able to visit villages that we've been able to declare avoidable blind-free. And that's actually a huge accomplishment. When we do that door-to-door survey, we figure out what the prevalence of blindness is in that area. Mm -hmm. By going through that backlog, we resurvey the area after the fact to make sure we've eliminated all those cases. But that takes about three to four years. But in that three to four years, they've adopted that health-seeking behavior. What's really, really cool is, is that these communities take ownership. They're empowered now to make sure that they never see avoidable blindness in that community now that right. they've been educated. Wow. So if somebody has a problem with their sight, they don't rely on just the person or the neighbor going on their own. That neighbor will actually take them if that person is yeah. not wanting to. Yeah. Because in that village, right now we have just under 1,100 villages. Think about that. 1,100 villages that are avoidable blind-free right now. That's um, incredible. In Nepal and in India. And so those villages have a plaque that they've put up. It's actually a fairly large sign in their community. And they've had politicians and community leaders all be part of these celebrations where we take a backseat. It's their celebration. Yeah. It's them celebrating what they've accomplished. So now the pride that they have in that that particular area of the slum or that particular neighborhood or that particular village Mm -hmm. is avoidable blind free. They never want that to come back. Right. But what's really cool when you're there is you see that these same people also now start looking at their other areas of primary health. Mm. So when somebody is pregnant, they'll make sure that that person is given the education or or that the nursing unit of the hospital will attend to them. Or if a child is new to the the neighborhood, make sure that they get immunized. So the ripple effect of taking care of people's visions is also there for their primary health. And that is really so cool to see, that is so you know, cool. just to be a part of that. That's awesome. So how did you even fall onto the position of being CEO of this organization? You know what? I, I'm a big believer in things happen for a reason. You yeah. know, and I'd like to think that, you know, sort of the universe had made it a lucky break for me. Yeah. You know, the former CEO was retiring and he called me up and said, you know, I want to have lunch with you. And I had already made fun of him for retiring. And I thought, well, it's kind of unusual that he wants to have a particular lunch for on a particular day. And yeah. that's when he told me that he really would encourage me to, to put my name in the hat. Mm. And they were doing a Canada-wide search. And I told him, I don't have international experience. I do have not-for-profit experience, but I don't have international yeah. experience. And so I'm not sure... I would even qualify. And he says, you know, just put your name in the hat. So they did this search and I was the one standing. And it was, I kid you not, I knock on all the wood I possibly can. Yeah. And were you an optometrist before? Were you in that field? No. So I kind of did my career a little bit backwards. Okay. Um, Most people go into the not-for-profit world. Many people go in later in their careers. Whereas I started in my career and I was given such great opportunities coming out of school. So I I started with the Canadian Red Cross up in Edmonton, which is where I grew up. And then I got a transfer to a promotion down in Calgary. And so I moved my one-year-old son and my my wife and I, we made the trip to Calgary. And Mm. then six months later, the gentleman who was my mentor moved from the uh, Canadian Red Cross to the Canadian Cancer Society and tapped me on the shoulder and said, come with me. Hmm. And that was a another once in a lifetime opportunity. Wow. So at, you know, 27 years old, I was given this senior position at 
one of the largest health not-for-profits. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to take it. Crazy. So I spent 10 years there. Then I spent the last 10 years in the private sector. So that really gave me a chance to really get my entrepreneurial bug, you know, really satisfied. And so with that background, this opportunity came up Mm. and this is kind of seems like it's the best of all those worlds combined. Yeah. I don't know if anyone could rip this job out of my hands, actually. And I I do want to dive into a little bit of your backstory, because I think just hearing you recount how you fell into this position and how everything kind of lined up also makes it that much more incredible that the preventable blindness aspect is actually a part of your family. Yeah. Something that impacted you when you were young. And can you get into that a little bit? Sure. Well, I mean, this is where I think I'm really fortunate. So what happened uh, was, is that I was actually born in in just outside of Kampala, uh, Uganda. And so a small town called Mango. And, uh, not something you hear every day. No, no, it's <laughs> yeah. not. So in the early 70s, during the uh, terror of Idi Amin in mm. Uganda, my family was expelled from Uganda and told to leave. And we had hours to board a plane and not know where we were going. Wow. So my mom, my dad, and my younger brother and I, and our, the rest of our family, and, and I'm sure all their friends as well, basically boarded a plane. We went straight to the airport. So we, and that was that was a call for all the South Asians to leave the country. Correct. And was there a big population of that background in Uganda at the time? Huge. Okay. Huge. Yeah. So I think the mentality of the dictator Idi Amin was is that South Asians were taking the prosperity away from Ugandans. Okay. And so being who he was and how he saw the world, expelled all South Asians from Uganda wow. in one fell swoop. So people at that time, there's a lot of documentaries have been made about this dictator, but he was a murderer. He murdered people left, right, and center. He was even known as a cannibal for eating some of those individuals. So it was a really terror-filled time for many South Asians wanting to get out out of Uganda. So we boarded a plane and we ended up in Austria. And it was actually a month and a half ago that I saw the first pictures. I've never seen them of us being in that refugee camp. Wow. And it was really, really surreal because you told the story, but until you see the pictures of being in that yeah. refugee camp, it was really, you know, just a, a, a bit of an awakening. And how old were you at that time? So I would have been about two and a half, okay. three years old. Wow. And so, yeah, about three, three and a half years old. And so we didn't know where we were going. We didn't know what was happening. And it was only supposed to be a short time, but then over a year we were there in, in Austria. Right. And then that's when the Canadian government opened the the borders for us to be able to come to Canada. And so we went from there directly to Canada. And Canada had a really interesting system where Canadian families sponsored different families as well. Okay. And so we had a Canadian family that was actually sort of like our surrogate family here in Canada. So they kind of helped my parents kind of figure out, you know, different things about living and clothing and jobs and things like that. Right. And so when we came, we went from Austria straight to Edmonton. Okay. And so I used to joke with my dad saying, you know, you went from the equator to Edmonton and uh, (laughs) we have usually a pretty good chuckle because the winter when we landed, we took the via train across the country to land in, in Edmonton. And it was cold, <laughs> but we had Austria for a little warm you know, up, for a little yeah. warm up, a pre-winter warm up. Wow! But to go go back to why Operation Eyesight is so personal for mm-hmm. me, it was my grandmother who was the one who raised me and my brother. 
because my parents were getting busy trying to figure things out. Yeah. How are they going to earn a living? They went from having businesses and money to having nothing. Yeah. And so they had to figure that all out on their own. So my grandmother was the one that got us up in the morning, taught us our prayers, got us off to school and basically raised us. Yeah. But she was blind. And she actually has a form of preventable blindness called retinitis pigmentosa. And so I take the role that I have now and I look at it very personally because what if her path had crossed with Operation Eyesight or vice versa? Yeah. How would her life have been different if that path had crossed? Right. And then I look at the secondary thing with how would my life have been different? Yeah. And so that really makes it very personal because to me, I don't want another grandmother or a grandchild out there to not have our paths not cross with right. them. And so for me, it becomes very, very meaningful in being a part of this organization and, and doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard not to, like hearing your story, it's hard not to ask, like, what are the chances that something so personal you've kind of fell upon that now you're making this difference? So in April... I got a chance to go to Zambia. Okay. And one of the one of the countries that we work in and and we work in a very remote area of Zambia called Sinazongwe. But one of the reasons we were out there was to visit, you know, a partner hospital that was we were reconstructing uh, some people and and then we were also visiting boreholes that we had drilled. Okay. So part of our work in Zambia is to drill these wells for people to have access to and then there's many different things that happen with that. Clean water, means clean faces. Clean faces means no trachoma. Right. And so those types of things in, in terms of our, our wash program and, and our safe program. So, you know, we're going from one borehole to another. And at the beginning, it was kind of cool seeing what a borehole looked like and how it was, you know, put together. And we eventually came to some different boreholes where there was people. Well, the chances of meeting a grandmother at a borehole, her name was Masakwe. Okay. And she had just gotten her eyes corrected because of the community health worker that we had in that area. Wow. And she was so reluctant to get it done. But finally, through the trust and the convincing, she got her cataracts removed. So she was actually able to see again, both eyes. And on her back was her granddaughter. And so I was able to ask her, what does it mean to you to be able to see your granddaughter growing up? Mm. And she started to cry. And I'm even tearing up right now because yeah, I'm thinking me too. <laughs> it was like, that's my grandmother. Wow. That was me, right? You know, wow. like that opportunity for us to make that difference, you know, in somebody's life. And now she is one of the biggest cheerleaders going from her village to other villages, convincing people that they should do this. Mm. And so for me, it really came home in that one moment. And it's one of my most favorite videos that I have mm. of, you know, we just happened to be capturing it on video and just her expression and, and then the hug and the laugh and the smile, it was over the moon. And that's what wow. people here in Canada are a part of with Operation Eyesight. That is incredible. Yeah, it was pretty cool. You're a lucky guy. <laughs> very, very, very lucky. That's amazing. Well, mm-hmm. it's incredible to just even trace your story. And I think when we first talked, you asked me to guess where you were from. (laughs) And I definitely wouldn't have guessed you were born in Uganda. But yeah, it's interesting too, because I think an image that a lot of people have 
of Canada, especially in the NGO world, is that we make such an impact. And yeah, I think in this podcast, we've had a lot of guests talk about cultural identity and what that means to them. And I think I'm just, yeah, I'm curious about how your discussions have been around that, especially because you were born in Uganda, were in Austria, came to Canada. Now you're all over the world kind of giving back. How do you explain your cultural identity or what? how do you approach those questions? One of the things that comes to my mind when you ask me that is when I'm over there and I'm visiting with, you know, different folks, whether it's a partner hospital or, or just the beneficiaries, mm-hmm. it's funny. They don't look at me or the organization as Operation Eyesight. Right. What really was surprising to me was they look at it as Canadian. Hmm. They see this as Canada helping them. Wow. And that really made me feel so proud. Yeah. In that, you know, in their minds, in their eyes, it's not a Canadian organization. It's not Operation Eyesight. Now, in the hospitals, Operation Eyesight has come to mean this very amazing, you know, affiliation with quality and credibility. Hmm. And that for me is something that's really something to be proud of. Mm-hmm. But when you talk to the beneficiaries, the beneficiaries see us as being there as Canadians, hmm. helping them. And in fact, in, in the Nepal Eye Hospital, they have a huge plaque and it's a big board. I'm, I'm not kidding. It's like one really large board. And the first sentence on that board, thanking people, the first sentence is, we thank the people of Canada. Wow. And so for me, being Canadian, it's a really a large sense of profound gratitude and, yeah. and pride, right? Because you're there as a Canadian. But the part that's really interesting is, is that we're living through a world right now that I feel is sort of a dark time. And the darkness around identity and fear mm-hmm. uh, around what does identity mean to people? Mm-hmm. And what does that fear look like of losing that identity? And it's not a fair way to look at it, but it's, I'm going to lose something if I allow sharing this space and this vacuum with others. And so for me, being over there, personally, I look at it and go, you know, I was a refugee. I was taken in to this beautiful country. My parents worked really hard. They did everything they could to provide for us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we got an education. Thankfully, we have our health. And I was able to find my way into a role like this. Yeah. So when I stepped off the plane last September for the first time, yeah. it was the first time I was back in East Africa. Right. But I wasn't there as an East African. I was there as a Canadian. You know, when I came off that plane and I was thankful just smelling that air for the first time, thinking to myself, it wasn't me returning as, you know, an East African. It was me returning as a Canadian. Right. That's something that I really hold, you know, really dear to myself in, in, in the work that I do mm-hmm. is, is looking at how people really equate Operation I right. to Canadian. Yeah. But in today's culture and today's world of where culture and identity is going, it's a neat thing to think about yeah. and try to address. You know, I, I kind of wish that people wouldn't have as much fear as they do. I think that the humanity of who we are and the civility that we seem to have lost a, a little bit in, mm-hmm. you know, in how we relate to one another, we're afraid even to share ideas because we're afraid yeah. of pros- being persecuted for those ideas. Right. If they don't go with what everyone else is feeling or with that mass thinking, yeah. then you're shut down. And, and we're shutting down creativity. Yeah. We're shutting down innovation in people really 
trying to be the best they possibly can be. Right. And for me, that's a bit of a tragedy, but I do still believe it's just a short, dark period. I think we will reflect back at this time and go, you know, we needed a bit of a cathartic moment globally right to have gone through this to realize what we really are in terms of humanity you know my hope is is that we're going to come out of this time frame in a brighter mm-hmm. more hopeful way yeah and i believe it's it's movements like yours that remind us that that's kind of what we're here for is to to support each other and provide opportunities for people to have that confidence and that pride in actually accomplishing something for the community around them and it looks different wherever you are in the world but at the end of the day that pride in community is something we can all participate in and it's not an exclusive thing it's something that everyone's invited to participate in and i think it's a beautiful illustration of that through operation eyesight and what that looks like Wow, I am still reeling from that conversation with Ollie, and I'm so grateful I got a chance to get him on the show for this season. His insight and story are just incredible. If you want to find out more about what Operation Eyesight is currently up to, you can visit their website at operationeyesight.com. Next, I'm pleased to end this week's show with an update from one of our esteemed guests, Lori Caltagirone. Lori is the CEO of Sinesis, a consulting agency for Calgary's oil, gas, and energy sector. Heading up this company as a woman in the Calgary energy and business circuit does have its challenges, not to mention Lori's outspoken and passionate rhetoric that surrounds her faith background. We had Lori on the show last season to tremendous interest and heard about her mentality when it comes to culture, background, and how she describes the energy and tone of Calgary. Today, we've invited her back for an international twist to talk about an exciting new project she's working on and some of her projections of the global economy doesn't sound like something you'd usually catch up on? Take a stab today. Lori's explanations and passions are fascinating and intriguing. I guarantee you'll be on the edge of your seat. Without further ado, I'm pleased to present my chat with Lori Caltagirone. So before we jump into things, it has been a bit since you've been on the show. So (laughs) maybe give us a brief summary of what you've been up to these days and kind of what's new. Well, I guess since the last time we spoke, there have been some interesting changes and some business as usual staying the course, of course, running a business. I've cel- we, This year, we celebrated our 15th anniversary. And I don't know if I mentioned that on the last oh, episode. Yeah. So 15 years running a business in Calgary, which I think is pretty exciting given that since 2015, it's been really tough. The lion's share of my clients are in the energy space. And that is a really competitive, challenging space to operate in these days. So I do not take that for granted. And so we've been growing the business, adding new clients. You know, as I mentioned on the last episode, truly the grace of God and the hand of God in really supporting and blessing our business strategy and our reach in the community and with our clients. So I'm truly grateful for that. I also made a commitment. So when you're an entrepreneur and when you run your own business, it's very challenging at times to have the right balance, work-life balance. And probably for too many years, I haven't really been investving in the home part of right, life or yeah. the personal part, say, of the life, part of life, the life of, part yeah. of life. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so since November, I've been really intentional about doing some 
travel, attending different types of events or conferences that really speak into my spirit and such. So I've been really good at that. And and one of the most interesting conferences, I spent a week in Oxford, England at Merton College, which is one of the oldest colleges in Oxford. And that was so rejuvenating and inspiring. I highly recommend if ever anybody has an opportunity to find a conference in Oxford, you have to go. No matter the cost, it is such a great investment and I think very life-changing. The other interesting area, um, I think I may have mentioned in the last podcast, we do a fair bit of research. And I'm just now in the last you know, over the last few months have been moving forward that research project on workforce demand. And so I have been meeting with some different ambassadors and (laughs) academics and think tanks to really move this research forward on global workforce demand. So this is an area that I would consider a bit of calling. It's outside of the traditional business services that we offer to our core clients. But nonetheless, I think it's an important piece of work. So those are some of the the highlights. It makes sense that you're kind of going that direction because of your background and you're interested in the global economy and how it's shifting and how it impacts people um, around the world, not just here in, in Calgary. Yeah. I just, I guess in that context, I'm curious from your perspective, what do you think under that umbrella is coming in these next generations? Like what essentially is the premise? What's the pattern you're picking up on? So I think that we're entering really unique times. Historically, our populations started a little bit smaller to get what we would consider vibrant economies in the Western world. There was a huge need to continue to grow populations and things like this, you know, so we were able to move large populations from throughout Europe uh, to North America, and then really build out North American between the United States and Canada and so on. So there was such a high demand for talent and labor. It was more labor, not so Mm -hmm. much talent, I would argue, but more labor because building out industries really required all hands on deck and automation at that point in time was, you know, there were a lot of people crying that people would go without jobs, but, you know, we've, we've been on such a strong trajectory. But at some point, you know, you always have to take stock and, and take a look at a few things. And so what are we seeing in terms of what work will look like in the future for people, the demand for it, what populations will, will look like? Well, the basic premise of, of that, you would like to see a balance, you know, you know, your classic supply and demand curve. Mm-hmm. And within that balance, there's as many healthy opportunities, uh, productive opportunities to engage in work that has a compensation attached to it that is a, a living compensation mm-hmm. of some sort, right? That's really important because opportunities, I think, really drive flourishing economies. When you have no opportunities, you may have supply of labor that wants to work, mm-hmm. but if they can't engage their talents in a meaningful way, that also brings an economic benefit so that they can maintain economic autonomy. Right, right. Then that's when you start to see societal issues because it becomes how do people put food on the table, roof over their head, if there isn't any economic benefit attached to work. There's mm-hmm. always going to be work. We can always find ways to engage our time. The question becomes, 
how do people bring home income so that they can live, right? right? Cover the basics of life. So when you're looking at that equation, you have to look at not only what are the opportunities and how many opportunities are there before us in the future, but also what will be the demand. Now, uh, a fellow named Daryl Bricker, he heads up research and maybe even heads up completely the Ipsos, okay, which does a lot of research on yeah. population trends and so on. And he just actually published a book that speaks to the notion of what our global population will look like. And mm-hmm. this was something really exciting to hear because, as you know, there's so many people that are concerned about Is our population going to get out of control and all of this? Well, his premise is that due to urbanization, which is where we see, you know, we've been very urbanized in North America and in Europe, but in Africa, China, India, we're going to see still where the lion's share of the population Mm -hmm. reside, a high degree of urbanization. And with that, what ends up happening is because there isn't the need for the same amount of large families, as many children. Women are working. People understand how expensive it is to live in an urban center. The birth rates actually decline naturally. So in urbanized and prosperous societies, most families will have just enough children that replace themselves, two kids. Right. Or the two and a half kids. They're not having children that actually grow the population. Yeah. So what we're his premises is that our population will be just maintaining. It'll actually decline, I think, somewhere in 2050. It'll actually decline to what the population is at 2012. Oh, wow. So all the demand on resources, the need for opportunities in the future, yeah. some of that will be corrected just based on demographic shifts, you know? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, so that's really relevant. And because I've also heard the flip side where mm-hmm. there's people saying, oh, by 2050, we'll hit 10 million and there's not going to be enough sustainability. Well, and- you know, and, and so that's where you have to kind of take a look at what are some of those core assumptions. You know, for example, in, in China, it is so expensive to live. Mm-hmm. It's even more expensive if you have children because there's a lot of extra costs associated with childcare. Right. From tutors and childcare and everything like that, especially when, you know, you the CEO from Alibaba has put an expectation that he expects people to work yeah. six days a week, 12 hours a day. Yeah. There's not a lot of child rearing time in there. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, or even when we talk about lifetime in there, you know, right, um, right. to enjoy life. But nonetheless, these are factors that contribute to managing the growth, you know, of the overall global population and, and so on. The other factor, again, and this is one of those interesting topics around, okay, so We've got machine learning, we've got robotics, we have AI, we have blockchain and all of these Mm -hmm. kinds of the internet of things and all of these concepts and topics. Now, what will that mean for what work will look like in the future? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of information out there that shape what type of skill sets are going to be in demand in the future. And I think that for individuals that are graduating from high school, college age, even into your 30s, it becomes, well... Where do I invest my education? What paths will lead me to a prosperous future? And by prosperous, I don't mean just only from a monetary, but also work that is engaging and satisfying and meaningful from your own perspective. And you're hearing that the types of skills will involve aspects of creativity or aspects of 
data analytics and being able to understand how to program and code and develop software and and all of these kinds of things. And I and I agree, there has to be an adaptability. Nobody has with a high degree of clarity all of the new types of jobs that will be spun off based off of how the economy is shifting again into even more of a digital age. Mm-hmm. So I think rather than skills, it becomes impact and purpose and also flexibility on the part of people at any stage to say, okay, here's a demand opportunity. I now have to come up to speed with that. And so to just yeah. be flexible to learn and not to be afraid of engaging in things. And and as a result of that, there are a lot of post-secondaries and educational institutions taking a look at how do we give micro degrees? Right, <laughs> yeah. And, and, well, and I even respond. think of Amazon doing their big yeah. training initiative yes. because everyone needs to be retaught new skills exactly. all of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. With, yeah. And so I think the advice that I would give is more to remain open-minded and excited about the opportunities. Don't view them through a lens of fear that I won't get it or Mm -hmm. because everybody's facing the same playing field, right? The same challenges of the pace of change. And so it's just becoming comfortable with that. And, you know, to be honest, I'm less concerned. I'm more agnostic about those types of opportunities, what they will look like. I'm more interested in, will there be the number of opportunities for people that actually want to engage Mm. in work. And so in that sense, I think there's a few things I would equip people with and challenge, regardless of what demographic you find yourself in. And the first thing I really want to say is that work matters. And like I said, there's always going to be opportunities to engage in work. But will that work attract compensation that allows a person to have a reasonable quality of life, right? Right. That you can you can take care of the basics. So I would argue that as individuals, we should be interested in investing in organizations, buying products from organizations that have a transparency about their workforce demand in the future. Right. If there's if there's a high desire on the part of the organization to automate absolutely everything and get their headcount down to practically like, you know, 10 people, which I'm, yeah. you know, being dramatic. Right. But I think as consumers, when we look at corporate social responsibility, we're really rewarding or penalizing organizations based on their, you know, environmental footprint and, you know, how they treat indigenous people or how they treat workers that if they're manufacturing in other uh, countries, you know, do they have good, strong health and safety standards? So we'll reward, uh, you know, are they involved in fair trade? All of these things, right? So I think we need to, it's not very transparent. It's not disclosed. This is a completely new concept. But I think that if we are consumers that are being as discriminating and discerning over corporate social responsibility trends on the environment, health and safety, fair trade, and so on, we need to be asking transparency about what is their intention with their workforce. Yeah. Because a very pat answer is that a lot of these technologies are not meant to replace jobs, just augment performance right. in the jobs. Right. But I think that potentially, and it's 
to be determined. You're just, you know, my opinion yeah. becomes, that's great. Well, then just be honest and straightforward about what that will mean. Absolutely. Um, what are your, your thoughts about your workforce demand uh, in the future? So this is a new concept. I've not seen any organizations even think about this. This is not on their radar. Yeah. But I think as consumers and investors, we should be really pushing for answers on this from, yeah, from various so companies. And is that part of what the data project that you're working on will help to do? Is well, that the goal? Or? You know, the goal of it, it's interesting. It, it may be an outcome, but my interest becomes, I just want to understand, do we have a supply-demand imbalance of any sort? And if we have something that's really material, because this is a global study on workforce demand globally and talent supply globally, because corporations right now can move you know, major plants and operations anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. So you, you can't really look at one region. And so based on the study, my hope is that understanding total supply, total demand, the demand for talent and the supply yeah. of the talent, that what will happen is if there's a material imbalance that it will be a call to action. I don't have a solution for it, but then we need to have a conversation about what will this mean for this country, for this society? How will this be addressed in a way that permits freedom, <laughs> which I'm a big fan of, that permits economic autonomy? Yeah. Because I think economic autonomy is paramount to freedom, actually. So that's what I'm really hoping the the study will be an opportunity to have yeah, that conversation that, if there's an imbalance. Yeah, that's really important work. And I don't think there's a lot of people I know of that are thinking about that. So, <laughs> Well, and you know, I haven't come across a lot of this published. There may be some different academic institutions that are looking at this, but it right. hasn't really been public yet. So stay tuned if yeah. you connect, uh, you know, next year, I'll probably be able to report on, that's amazing. on, on the results of this. All that being said, and kind of what you're observing in the process of that, I guess, maybe to, in a way, kind of conclude those thoughts for the right now. Yes. What is something that you would want people, particularly in my sector, in my age group, my demographic, to be mindful of as we continue to progress forward? What's something that I can be mindful of as I continue in my career or as I continue to come across people from all different backgrounds? What would you say is? You know, I, I here's what I would say. And yeah. if, if it's any consolation, it was the same advice that was shared with me. And I think it was the same advice that was shared to my parents and their parents. And what I'm excited about is that I believe this advice, regardless of our current condition or time in the world, I think it's it's very sound, transcendent advice. I think the first bit of advice would be the importance of just having a really strong work ethic. Mm -hmm. It's a competitive environment. My hunch is that it'll remain competitive. And so that means that there's no free lunches. There's no entitlement mentality that will, will pay off. It's just going to be roll up your sleeves, recognize it's going to be hard work and recognize with a strong work ethic, it means that there's waves, right? Right. Sometimes there is zero work-life balance for a week, maybe even a month or a couple mm -hmm. months, but, but then that's going to be offset. So to recognize that a strong work ethic isn't about workaholism, but it's understanding that sometimes in life you have to invest more and by investing in more that way, you're going to get a better payoff right. later. Right, right. 
So a strong work ethic. I also think grit is going to be another key element. And what I mean by having true grit <laughs> means that while you're working, you have a strong work ethic, there's going to be wrenches that are going to be thrown into your plans. There's going to be interpersonal conflicts with peers or your boss. There's going to be challenges that are just so frustrating. And so there needs to be an element to go, I accept that at this moment in time, my work and my future isn't going to be smooth sailing. Mm -hmm. I need to expect adversity. Right. And I have to then understand by expecting it, I'm going to be able to respond to it and become stronger. I'm going to overcome this. I'm going to learn from this, I'm going to grow in wisdom. So to part of grit is that there's a resilience and a determination to work through it and, and overcome it and not to overcome it with just a sheer grumpy attitude, like I'm mm -hmm. going to plow through this, mm -hmm. but, you know, to approach it with a sense of humor as well yeah, and, and yeah. a sense of peace, knowing that it's tough. I don't have all the answers. This is really crappy, but you know what? I'm going to figure this out and yeah. I can talk to people to help grant some wisdom. I can pray for wisdom. I can think about it. There's a lot of ways to understand mm -hmm. how to solve this problem, and but I will. And, right. and so that's a commitment with that when the going gets tough, just get going and go through it. I think facing this particular environment is a high degree of adaptability and flexibility then because having a preconceived notion of how things ought to go, that's good in many ways. You want to have a vision and a clear idea of how it needs to, mm -hmm. where you need to end up. But I also believe that there needs to be some flexibility given certain realities that become apparent. And so if, if it means you have to adjust the timeframes, if you have to adjust the people that are involved, your approach, whatever, that's okay. And then I think the other piece is it's important to be self-reflective <laughs> and truly on a daily basis, even yeah. at the end of the day, yeah. you know, to go, okay, that was a really great day. Why was it so great? What worked really well? Or man, I just kept failing, failing, failing. And then to reflect why, what could I have done different? I think to take and create space of some mental solitude for reflection. Mm -hmm. And it has to be more than 15 minutes. I think you need to give yourself a solid hour because there's a lot of noise that goes through your mind. You have to give some time to really think and debrief and understand. And you may not even fully understand, but maybe a pattern will emerge mm. over a month or two, you know, as that's you reflect. Really yeah. But you need to journal that out and to really think, because I think that's how you're going to actually have growth and learn how to be adaptable, how to be resilient and, and gritty. <laughs> and even clarifying your purpose and yeah. where you need to be and what you need to invest your time in terms of training or learning. So I think it's well worth the investment. What an amazing chat with Lori. I'm so pleased that I got to talk with her on the show again this season and hear all about the way she truly sees the big picture in a way I certainly couldn't on my own. To all my millennial listeners, do you have people around you like Lori or Ali that you can discuss big ideas with? It certainly inspired me to reach for the stars myself in all that I do. And after talking with them, I always feel so refreshed. I hope my conversations with them were exciting for you. Did you have any thought babies or new ideas while listening to these two chat? Let me know. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's special episode of Anti-Culture. 
I'm super curious to hear your thoughts on my guest this week. So please, millennials or not, shoot me a tweet or an Instagram DM at Josiah Podcast. Or feel free to send me an email on my website, josiahpodcast.com. I can't wait to bring you another deep dive into culture, stories, and identity next week. I don't want to spoil it yet, but you're going to want to make sure you don't miss this next one, especially if you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you have a moment this week as a subscriber, I would really appreciate a review of the show. Not only does this help the show gain traction, but it also helps me show up more often on platforms like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you so much if you already have. My name is Josiah Sinanen, and until next week, thank you for listening to Anticulture. Culture.